Welcome to the Hogan Lovell's Litigation Landscape podcast series. These episodes will focus on the legal issues affecting businesses during COVID-19 disruption and beyond. Our team of global lawyers will help you navigate through these challenging times by providing expert insights and practical suggestions, giving you the tools you need to mitigate your risk and ensure stability. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. Today we're looking at bankruptcy and insolvency litigation issues. I'm Crispin Rappanet. I'm a litigation partner in our London office and I'm very pleased to be joined today by uh, Chris Dobby, who's going to be giving us the Asian perspective. He's based in our Hong Kong office. Erin Brady in Los Angeles, who will be talking about the issues from a US perspective. Manon Cordawena in Amsterdam, our Dutch office, who will talk about the continental Europe, European angles. And John Tillman, who will talk about the UK perspective, who's a partner with me in London. This coronavirus pandemic has caused major worldwide disruption to markets, to supply chains, to workforces. Businesses have seen their revenue streams severely disrupted, leading many of them in financial distress. For some, this is going to mean recourse through the courts becomes necessary. And we're going to be talking about some of the issues that businesses may face as they take to the courts, some of the emerging issues that we are beginning to see in the bankruptcy and insolvency litigation context, some of the recent changes to legislation and the growing trend that we're seeing towards third-party funding. John, we're going to kick off with you. Uh, if you'd like to uh, talk about uh, the issue of renegotiation of payment terms, which is something that many of our clients are facing uh, around the world. What are the issues arising there? Sure. Uh, thanks, Crispin, for that. Um, I, I think we're seeing a lot of people having to negotiate uh, payment terms in circumstances where um, entities uh, are experiencing difficulties and asking for more time to pay or, or looking to enter negotiations to extend uh, their credit terms. Uh, and obviously, if you're on the receiving end uh, of those sorts of uh, discussions, um, there are various issues you need to think about. Um, clearly, if there are uh, fundamental impasses, that then that can lead to disputes. But obviously, one hopes that it doesn't and that through negotiations, uh, one can uh, reach some sort of accommodation whereby, as the creditor, um, you feel that your interests are being protected. Uh, and one of the things that we sometimes see is uh, in those negotiations is that the creditor will ask the, the, the debtor, the party in difficulties, um, to make at least some sort of early payment. And obviously that's uh, potentially attractive from the creditor's position, but there are some things that in that scenario the creditor um, needs to think about. And they principally, those issues arise from the fact that if the debtor later becomes insolvent, uh, that then there can be situations in which those who are appointed over the, the insolvent debtor, the, the insolvency process, will ask themselves, well, well, what was this debtor doing in the months and sometimes years preceding the insolvency? Where did its assets go? And are there any reasons why payments that it made or security that it granted uh, should be set aside? Uh, and most countries' insolvency laws have, have that kind of clawback or, or antecedent transaction regime. 
It varies from country to country. But obviously, as the creditor, one wants to make sure that any any early payment or any security that one is granted it isn't later vulnerable uh, to challenge, uh, if at all possible. So, so one of the things that we advise creditors to do, obviously, uh, on the commercial side, to secure um, as much as they can in terms of, of payment or security or other comfort on a commercial level, but, but also to try to make sure that that's, that's done in such a way as to avoid vulnerabilities uh, to challenges later. Erin, you have similar provisions in, in the US, presumably. Are there practical tips that we can advise clients on in terms of how to protect themselves? So our first answer to that question is don't ever refuse a payment. Um, take your preferential payment and we can defend it on the back end. So that's number one. Number two, it's good to ensure that you're getting prompt payment, not payment too soon and not payment too late. Because in, in Chapter 11, when we're looking at clawback type analysis, we're looking at where the payment falls within the ordinary course of business. And a late payment can, can penalize you the same as an early payment, which is somewhat counterintuitive. The third thing I always tell people is stay on top of a client. Clients who are falling behind or have financial issues are always going to be pushing to delay payments. But that's where you start to get yourself into preference trouble is when you keep extending without ensuring you're getting paid. And as you continue to provide those services, you continue to get into a deeper hole. Chris, in, in the Hong Kong courts, do you see a lot of those challenges? We, we tend not to see um, that many uh, of these types of, of claim. Um, in, in genuine um, commercial circumstances, uh, there's a sort of a two-stage um, investigation that the court has to go into. In the first uh, instance, um, you have to analyze whether the, the transaction in question has had the effect of putting um, the, the recipient into a position which in the event of the company going into insolvent liquidation would be better uh, than the position that the person would have found themselves in had it not been done. Now, usually that's not too hard um, to uh, evidence, but it the the second limb is is generally the harder one uh, as you you need to establish that it's done with the the requisite desire to prefer that particular creditor in the event of insolvency and you know in the usual uh, commercial context that desire is rarely the case it's usually to avoid um, the uh, unfortunate consequences of precipitous action by uh, your creditors, um, taking action, seizing assets, and the such like. So you, usually there's a, uh, a difficulty in um, proving the subjective element on the part of, of the company. So as a consequence of that, we tend not to see uh, many of, of these types of actions. Okay. We are familiar with uh, schemes of arrangement, uh, compromises with creditors, Chapter 11 protection in the United States. Um, and it, it's along those lines that we have new legislation, uh, I think, in, in the Netherlands, Manon, which you're going to talk to us about, the new debtor-in-possession procedure in, in the Netherlands. Yeah, that's uh, correct. And I think it is a groundbreaking news here in the Netherlands, um, whereas these debt restructuring schemes are uh, fairly common in the UK and the US. 
under Dutch law, if you want to um, enter into a restructuring scheme or want to offer a composition scheme to all of your creditors, under current law, you need 100% of the creditors to vote in favour of these schemes to be successful. That is obviously the reason why um, they are seldom implemented um, in the Netherlands. This new legislation, which is currently at the Senate in the Netherlands, introduces such a debt restructuring scheme. And it's based upon the schemes that are being used in the UK and the US. One of the elements which I think is relevant in the Netherlands and may mean that it is not as successful as um, the US or UK schemes will be is that the position of secured creditors will be completely different under Dutch law. Because for secured creditors, a distinction is made between, on the one hand, um, the amount of claim for which a secured creditor can be fully paid out of the secured assets, and on the other hand, um, the rest of the claim which is then unsecured. Such secured creditors should be ranked in two different classes. So one, the class for which the value of the secured asset is sufficient to cover the secured debt, and the other class, uh, the, the secured creditor, will then be ranked as an ordinary creditor. And whilst that may not be um, very different from other systems, um, the question is what the value is of the secured asset. And under Dutch law, it has been determined that the secured assets should be calculated or valued at a uh, liquidation value, and so not at a going concern value. And we assume that that will be um, very um, dramatic for secured creditors, lenders in the Netherlands. John, I wondered if you wanted to pick up on that point that Manon was making about the sort of classes that uh, that that are looked at in terms of implementing schemes of arrangements and the way in which creditors are uh, are carved up into into different classes or categories. Yeah, sure. I mean, in England, we do indeed have that challenge. And usually the way that the, the, the party is promoting a scheme and the courts will approach it is to, to look at the legal rights of, of the different creditors in order to try to work out what classes they should each be in. And you can sometimes have um, a group of creditors who are sufficiently similar in their rights that there is a single class. And if you have a complicated debt structure uh, involving a corporate, then you may have creditors falling in, falling into to a number of different classes. Um, so, so in each case, that has to be considered afresh. But, but what I think is slightly different from what Manon was describing is that we don't, at the stage of working out classes, um, uh, necessarily try to uh, value each creditor's uh, debt in terms of a likelihood of being paid and the difficulties that, that that can obviously attract in terms of where the value may break. It, it tends to be in England, subject to, to some special situations, that that what, what matters is your legal rights and, and your votes are, are determined by you know the amount of your debt and, and the legal rights attaching to it, rather than some evaluation of, of, of the likely true value of that debt if it was to be paid out. Thanks, John. Erin, 
the new Dutch procedure has been referred to as a sort of debtor in possession procedure, familiar to, uh, similar to, to Chapter 11. Does that resonate with you, what Manon's been talking about? Are there some big differences there? I definitely can see how it's been modeled on the U.S. regime, the concept of class structure, cram downs, financing. There's a couple of things that strike me as very different. The first, is, as we'll get into, is, is valuation and in, in the way that the collateral is valued. But kind of picking up on, on what John just said, when we're putting creditors in classes in the U.S., we're also looking at whether creditors within the class are similarly situated, meaning do they have similar legal rights? When we look at whether the class is approving um, the proposed plan, we're looking at whether or not we have two-thirds of the value of claims in that class. So if we had a creditor whose claim was dubious, like a contingent claim, we call it estimating that claim for purposes of confirmation. So that's different than the concept of giving it an actual asset value. And, and actually, that valuation for confirmation purposes is often, I wouldn't say inflated, but the creditor gets the benefit of the doubt in many instances as to that value if it's a little bit dicey. So I've never seen that happen with a secured creditor because usually we see valuation happen post-voting in Chapter 11 through a confirmation trial process. But it, that there is some similarity there in, in pegging a creditor's claim you know, as part of an earlier process. That's great. Well, thanks for that. I suggest we move on to our third topic, which is one that we have already uh, foreshadowed, particularly in the context of uh, Chapter 11s and and plans of reorganization in the US, which is the key issue of of valuations in the context of bankruptcy and solvency situations. Erin, can we start with you? What what sort of impact do you expect the pandemic and uh, the current market instability that we're seeing right across the globe is, is going to have on this question of this key issue of valuations? Yeah, so given the, given the uncertainty that exists right now as to how quickly businesses will recover, what the economy is going to look like post-pandemic, what even post-pandemic means, we're either going to see one of two things. We're going to see a significant amount of valuation litigation, or we're going to see debtors in possession doing everything in their power to consensually come to valuation agreements with their creditors to avoid the litigation. In the U.S., valuation is just a critical underpinning of every plan of reorganization. So that valuation is going to be determined generally by means of expert testimony in the U.S. at least. One of the big things that we're going to see out of this is there'll be experts in this new sort of valuation of pandemic businesses, much like we saw in the in the recession in 2008, where we saw valuation opinions become very critical. So when the experts come and, and do their valuations, they're, they're highly subjective. They're going to look at a liquidation value, a discounted cash flow, and then a comparable company's analysis. And then they're going to blend those depending on the market, the industry, um, and whatever other factors they may take into consideration at the time they're rendering their opinion to come up with a, a valuation range. And I think the best example of this in retail cases, we'll see this in the actual reports, is that there is an assumption, which I think is correct, that retail inventory valuations are going to be significantly depressed in the current market. They're generally based on hard asset liquidations that are done in person, in stores, by liquidators with lots of people coming in. And that's likely just not 
going to be a viable model, at least in the US. Thank you. Thanks for that, Erin. So Manon, you were referring earlier in the context of the new Dutch legislation to the significant difference between going concern valuation and liquidation valuation. Are you expecting in in the implementation of your new legislation to have expert evidence in the same way as Erin was talking about that we see in Chapter 11s? Yes, I do expect that, um, especially under the new regime, um, because the secured creditors, um, and especially the senior creditors, uh, will have a debate. They will bring in experts to argue why the secured assets have a particular value. So we do expect uh, experts to come in. And that's completely different from uh, the current regime, because in a bankruptcy scenario under Dutch law now, it's simply done by a expert, not a group of experts. And then it's up to um, the liquidator to sell on either a going confer- concern value or liquidation value. So whilst we don't have an issue uh, with that under current uh, law, that will dramatically st- uh, change under the new legislation. And John, let's turn to the UK perspective. I mean, I guess the most obvious analogy is is it really the administration regime in the UK and in particular pre-PAC administrations. And how is valuation assessed there? Do, do the administrators get expert evidence to back up the, the price at which they do a pre-PAC sale? They can do. I mean, it really depends on the business, uh, the nature of the assets and the circumstances of the, the, the administration. Um, you, you do see instances where um, for timing reasons or because publicity is is considered likely to damage value that um, uh, the, the the management who are promoting or the, the owners who are promoting uh, an administration in a prepack sale uh, and the office holders who, who are envisaging conducting it will will take valuations just as Erin was saying and get get expert valuers to, to look at the assets and give them comfort that any sale that they're going to do is at a proper price. The other thing which you can see, and uh, it will be interesting to see if that works in the current um, market difficulties, is you sometimes see businesses or assets being marketed before the prepack, such that that one of the ways of valuing the business is to is to actually go out on an accelerated M and A type uh, process to solicit bids and to see what the business could be sold for. And obviously that can, can, can have a dual function of being part of the way of, of rescuing the business if a sale can be achieved. But but such marketing, if done properly, can also be a way of getting some independent indicators of value. Okay, thanks. So let's turn to our last topic. Uh, we have, we've talked about anticipated litigation in relation to bankruptcy and insolvency values. We have talked about a number of businesses finding that they come out the other end of this pandemic in a far worse financial situation uh, than they went in, uh, and lots of businesses finding it challenging. But one business that seems to regard the pandemic and the economic consequences of it as a real opportunity, quite clearly, is the litigation funding market. Uh, And I think a number of us have seen uh, much increased levels of activity from litigation funders who clearly regard the whole situation as uh, a, as an opportunity and anticipate increased levels of uh, bankruptcy and insolvency litigation. Uh, thanks, Chrisman. That's absolutely right. Just to sort of put matters in context, 
Um, litigation funding or third-party funding in, in Asia is, is nowhere near as widespread or as common as it is in uh, a number of other jurisdictions, the UK, the US um, or, or Australia. Um, in Hong Kong and Singapore, we still have the common law uh, prohibitions uh, against maintenance and champity that uh, prevent um, the funding of litigation absent legitimate interest uh, and they prevent funding of litigation for uh, reward. What has happened over the, the last few years is there's been a gradual relaxation. In Hong Kong in particular, um, we have what is called the insolvency exception to um, the uh, Champerty prohibition, which allows a liquidator or a trustee in bankruptcy to sell or assign causes of action. Uh, and that has been of, of uh, significant interest to funders uh, around the common law jurisdictions as it enables them to lawfully fund um, claims. Uh, what we have seen this year in particular is uh, more um, liquidators looking at funding claims. We're seeing more creditor constituencies asking liquidators or trustees in bankruptcy to consider litigation funding um, as an option. Uh, for those who, whose agreements are subject to arbitration clauses, um, the uh, litigation funders have seen uh, a, a very strong uptick in um, shareholders' disputes, breach of contract claims, insurance claims, uh, and all manner of supply chain-related uh, disputes. And of course, that is uh, largely driven by the uncertainties caused by uh, the, the, the COVID-19 challenges and the fact that lots of um, businesses need to preserve cash and that's causing them to consider litigation funding uh, as an option. Now, as I mentioned at the outset, um, litigation funding um, is largely in its infancy uh, in many of the Asia-Pacific uh, jurisdictions and suffers from the challenges um, of prohibition in various uh, jurisdictions. Uh, however, with the um, right structuring and uh, approach, it is enabling certain businesses to preserve cash whilst being able to pursue valuable causes of action in these difficult and uncertain times. That's interesting. Thanks, Chris. Manon, let's turn to continental Europe. Uh, do litigation funders play an active role in the... Are they significant players in the bankruptcy and insolvency scene across continental Europe yet? Yeah, it's becoming more important in the Netherlands or in Europe. Um, years ago, and I think only five years ago, it was hardly ever used, maybe with the sole exce uh, exception of arbitration proceedings. But it's now kind of widely spread and used by bankruptcy trustees. And maybe interesting to know, under Dutch law at least... A bankruptcy trustee is only paid out of the estate as long as there is sufficient value in the estate to pay the liquidator. So that makes it very interesting for a bankruptcy trustee to attract litigation funding in order to be able to pursue litigations. John, what have you seen in the in the London market in relation to litigation funding? Uh, I mean, over the last, I don't know how many years now, but it's certainly grown very substantially. And I think 
as as Chris says, that things are getting um, uh, more sophisticated in the, the types of products available, the types of cases that funders are potentially interested in, um, the, the fact that people are now willing to consider funding portfolios of cases rather than individual cases, it means it, that it's something that's that's quite well developed, um, I think, in the in the UK market now. And then Aaron, um, let's turn to the states. What's the attitude of the US courts to, to litigation funders? Does it vary from state to state? Within the broader US community, I think litigation funding has definitely picked up steam in the US. Within the bankruptcy or Chapter 11, Chapter 7 even context, I think it it's just starting now to maybe catch on and we're seeing some increase in demand and use. The one other thing to note in the U.S., you would need to have court approval for that litigation funding because it's essentially paying out assets of the estate to a third party. So I haven't seen courts be hostile to it, and I think generally a court would be open to it as long as creditors were generally acquiescing. Excellent. Thank you. Well, I think uh, I think that, that brings us to a natural conclusion. Uh, it just remains for me to say thank you very much to Chris, to Erin, to Manon and to John for your uh, very interesting contributions. It's been a great pleasure for me to talk with you today. Uh, if anyone listening would like to discuss any of the issues that we've uh, raised here, uh, then please do feel free to get in touch with any of us. You can find our details on the on the Hogan Lovells website or just contact the partner with whom you usually deal. Goodbye. If you're interested in any of the issues raised during this podcast, we can help. Please speak to your Hogan Lovells contact or visit our website, hoganlovells.com.